Ladies and gentlemen, The Dana Buckler Show is made possible by all of our amazing Patreon supporters. We have a lot of big things planned in the immediate future, and this is possible because of the support this show receives. So what do you get when you become a supporter? Early access to episodes, past episodes that are no longer available on the main podcast feed, and a number of exclusive episodes. Sign up today by going to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There is a link in this episode's show notes. Once again, we want to say thank you to all of our supporters. You are amazing. Now on with the show. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana. And I'm Kristen. And on this episode, we are incredibly thrilled to welcome uh, writer, director, Steve DeJarnett. How are you, Steve? Great. It's uh, wonderful to be on your show. Uh, we're, we're excited to have you on here. There's a lot that we want to talk about. But before we get started, I just longtime listeners of the show know that we have been huge champions of Miracle Mile for a long time. And it's a movie that we've recommended on countless episodes of our podcast. And I want to just tell you real quick, Steve, my introduction to the movie. This is probably about 17, 18 years ago. I was just flipping through the channels, two o'clock in the morning, one of my, it could have been Cinemax, Showtime, HBO, don't know. I caught the, the movie maybe 30 minutes after it started. I was so enamored with the movie and I didn't even know the movie's name because it was, it was one of those channels where I couldn't even pull up a channel guide to find out what I was watching. And I spent a good 10 years trying to find this movie, <laughs> trying to figure out where it was. I went to Blockbuster. I was talking to them. I, I was describing the plot of the movie. And I, I just want to tell you on a personal note, I'm I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled that you're on the show. This yeah. movie is really special to me. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I've heard people say that before that they they what, fell into this movie in the middle of the night, didn't know anything about it, which is of course the best way to watch it. And and some people, yes, had the same problem. They didn't know that maybe it shouldn't have a name. Maybe <laughs> it should be the film with no name, and and it's just put on the air and and you have to watch it. But uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, I'm glad you found out the name and eventually found me. Absolutely. And, um, you know, Kristen, I, it was, you actually found the movie through listening to the show. I did. In fact, it was just before I became, uh, on, before I came on the show with Dana that I had been listening to some episodes and he had recommended in one of the 20th century movie clubs, the movie Miracle Mile. And the way that he described it, and it just piqued my interest. I love apocalyptic movies, and I immediately said, "This is one I have to see." And I'm I'm really glad that I did it. it and it's definitely something that is one of the the better movies I've seen all year, as far as especially anything older, where you're you're recommended something that is an older movie, you know, '80s movie. It probably one of my favorites, and I've been recommending I'm recommending it to people. And we've recommended it several times on the show, but I've recommended it, in fact, just the other night to a friend of mine who actually, believe it or not, was a really big fan of Cherry 2000. And I said, well, I can't believe you haven't seen Miracle Mile. And he watched it for the first time last night and called me immediately and said how much he absolutely loved it, how perfect the movie was, how the ending was perfect. I mean, he just went on and on and on about how great it was. And that has been the consistent response from anyone I've recommended it to. You know, it's these days it's sort of accepted as this cult classic or whatever. When it came out, there it had a lot of fans, but it at least a quarter or maybe a third of the people who saw it hated it, absolutely hated it. 
whether it was too disturbing. I mean, critics too, when it, it during its release, whatever that was. Um, yeah, there's people who just tore it apart. So it's I just, I'm sort of actually like it now when somebody says they hate it because it's like oh oh that's different because everybody seems to just you know give it give it the approval now in the in the cult world anyway sure so. well i i do a series on the show called the 20th century movie club where all we do is recommend movies that were released before yeah. the year 2000 and we've mm-hmm. done 21 episodes where we recommend a oh. minimum of six movies a episode and miracle mile is far and away the one that gets the most listener feedback it's the one that people reach out to us the most and say dana i'm so glad you recommended that that was the movie so we we have to know steve you know where does it begin where does the where does the where does the whole story begin you know i had i've said this before i i I had terrible nightmares you guys are too young but i grew up in the duck roll and cover you know in in school the way the kids unfortunately are training for shooters now we're trained for the end of the world you're going we are going to war with Russia, with Soviet Union, and when the bombs hit, hide under your desk. Then uh, go get the cans, you know, down in the bomb shelter, blow the new, the radioactive dust off them, and like eat and come up and fight the Russians to the death, you know. So it was. If this wasn't, you know, this could happen. It was this is going to happen and be prepared. So every kid, of course, is really traumatized. The end of the world is worse then not a lot of things worse than a school shooting, but, but that is so, um, uh, and you know, I just, I think it was my way of getting rid of my nightmares. It was always something that I thought's the number one issue in the world today. Climate change is a big deal, but that's still very slow. And I like to say this after running the film too, it's much more likely the scenario in miracle mile happens tonight than back in the eighties. Yeah. Much more hair possible to to occur so just should keep people up again and i was that was one of me one of the questions that i was going to ask you is if you know for the younger listeners if you could speak to you know what it was like to live in that time when every day i mean you you thought about it it had to been every day Uh, yeah it's i mean it traumatized everybody i mean you hear an air raid siren it's uh it's it it you know you break out in a sweat there, there is an air raid siren at the very end, at the end of the credits, which I think is on the DVD and the Blu-ray now, and it was on the theatrical release, but then it, it was not on the DVD that came out in the interim. So when you're walking out of the theater after the credits roll, the lights come up, there's an air raid siren, which is That's supposed right. to get you. But, so um, you, you've written the script. What happens? I mean, you're, I, what, give us a time period. Like, okay, just Okay, I... Grew up here in the state of Washington where I'm living again now, although I spent a lot of time in L.A. and I'll probably be back there. And I was I was just a, you know, a jock in a little logging town, Longview, Washington, near Portland. Only saw movies at the drive-in and didn't really see those too well. I had no, So I had no uh, connection to the movie business. Went to college in L.A., Occidental College, and got injured. And the guys down the hall were making movies. Uh, Jim and Ken Wheat, the Wheat brothers, they you know wrote Pitch Black and they've done a bunch of stuff. And so I just sort of fell into that and started making Super 8 movies, made, I think I sent you a couple of shorts, um, wrote eight scripts, couldn't get anybody reading. This is in the 70s. This is early on. You know. And what was my, my, I went to the AFI. I had a great class, John McTiernan, oh. Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskowitz. 
Rick McCallum, Lucas's producer, Ron Underwood, Stu Kornfeld, who produced Elfman. That's my class. Marty Bress and Amy Heckerling the year before. Wow. Um, so, and then I worked at BBS, uh, which, you know, made five easy pieces, Easy Rider, as Picture Show as the projectionist and worked in the days of have an editing room. So I didn't get much out of the AFI other than it was a cool place to be in a, the big Doheny mansion. It was a projectionist there, went to Sherwood Oaks and film X was the bit. That was sort of my in, indoctrination into film. And I still think the seventies are the best era ever for film. I didn't, couldn't get anybody to, you know, no, it's very hard to get into Hollywood till later in the seventies. And then I made Tarzana use AFI crews, even though I dropped out of school, I used all the people who shot AFI films. And it played at Filmex, which is sort of the equivalent of Sundance today. It was the biggest fe film festival. It was in Los Angeles. Everybody, everybody in Hollywood had come to see Marty Brest's 70-minute movie, Hot Tomorrows. And it was shot in black and white. We had the same crew. I was the opening band. Literally, the film was just was still wet from the lab. And so it was like the opening band that, you know, some people like more than the, the, the headliner. I mean... Uh, every people should see Mar uh, Hot Tomorrow's. You should try to find Marty. He's hard to find, and Hot Tomorrow's should get another viewing. Uh, anyway, the next I went from being a busboy in Highland Park uh, in L.A. to being a Hollywood director overnight. Literally, I was just mentioning this on Facebook after watching the big picture. The next week, twelve agents wanted to sign me, and I was offered features to direct. So, so off what, the short film. What What was the first professional gig that you did? See, I think, I mean, I was attached to a few things. I had some, a deal at Orion. Uh, Miracle Mile, I, uh, Tony Bill, who's an actor and a producer, produced The Sting and Taxi Driver, I think, or something. Um, he, he had taken Marty um, and Amy Heckerling into Warner Brothers. And back then, you could be, you know, you went into a studio and they said, what do you want to do? And they gave you money to develop it. That doesn't occur anymore. So I went in, actually, I went to Tony Bill first and I had a list of 20 ideas or something. Miracle Mile was like somewhere down the list, you know, nine or 10. It came up. Tony said, Oh, that's a good one. It was just the kernel of the idea. Like, you know, what, you know, real time, time lock. If you were the, first, the person who knew it was happening in the middle of the night. And I went in and I pitched that to Mark Rosenberg, uh, who was head of Warner Brothers. And they put it in development, you know, um, and Mark, uh, well, there's more stuff that happened with the script there, but, uh, Alan Rosenberg, who plays the young street sweeper, that was his brother. And, uh, Mark actually was in the SDS. So when he's listing all those radicals, that's kind of, you know, uh, invoking his brother who, who passed away by the time we filmed it, wrote it for Warner brothers, turned it in. They loved, they liked it. They liked it a lot. They just wanted to put some other writers on it. Let's put a $150,000 writer on it, which is back then a lot of money. And they, I said, just, you know, they paid me 18,000 or something. I said, just, you know, what do you want changed? I'll change it. Yeah. So somehow I was savvy enough to just go then, then if they pay somebody else, it's going to be hard to get it back. So it ended up, they didn't put another writer on and. I was the, the director. Some people think they wouldn't allow me to direct. No, I was actually uh, approached by studios to be a director, not a writer necessarily. 
So I, there's, there wasn't a question of me directing it at that point. And I asked for it back. They gave me a free year of option. And then I had to option it for a year or two. Uh, this is 1980 when I, you know, I turned the script in, I think in December of 79. So technically the script is a 70s script. And for Warner Brothers, uh, I rewrote it myself at a certain point. And Warner Brothers then offered me a fortune to sell it back to not direct because I didn't know this at the time, but Mark wanted it for Twilight Zone, the movie. Oh, uh, and I, which I don't think it would be satisfying to the Twilight Zone audience or American Mile audience. And I, my agent at the time was Jim Burkus, who was founder of UTA, and he, they, Mark was going to, they were going to pay like four. 100,000, maybe 500,000, whatever William Goldman and Robert Town got. So it's like, you're going to be the equal to the highest paid writer in Hollywood. Just say yes, dude. And I said no. (laughs) That's a bold move. Spent eight years, you know, getting it made. So, you know, I did get a reputation as the guy who won't play ball or, you know, I wasn't obnoxious. I didn't have, it wasn't an ego thing. It was just like, no, this is all I got. I got to make this movie. I don't really regret that, you know, but, uh, you know, was an odd choice. So, so the movie was originally um, set up to have Nicolas Cage as the lead, and then Anthony Edwards ultimately was the lead. Which I think, I mean, I think he was perfect as the lead for it, that role. But how did that all? How did that happen? Well, it's you know, once we left uh, Warner Brothers, then you're shopping it around, and you're talking to, you know, every week you're meeting with somebody who who has money or so, says they have money. So the so, company that ended up producing it, Hemdale. Uh, there was an incarnation um, before I did Sherry. In fact, there's a, a weird day where Miracle Mile and Sherry, like, you know, when it, you know, crossed paths. And I can go into that a little bit. But uh, Nick Cage was attached. It was going to be a $2 million movie. And John Daly was doing the banking. And I think it would not have been good. I mean, I love Nick's work. He was going to play the character he played in Peggy Sue Got Married. Okay. I love that, that, that movie. <laughs> I know, but I whatever that guy was, I forget his <laughs> name. He says, this is, he had done that. Is This is Harry Warshaw. Anyway, um, and, you know, he'd only done Valley Girl and a couple of, he hadn't done Moonlighting. He was, you know, he was up and coming. He was, he was very hot. And I remember it was, I told this story before, but it was a very weird day. John Daly's doing the banking, getting $2 million. Uh, Mike Medavoy, the head of uh, Orion, where I had a deal, calls up and said, we're sending you a script. Director just fell out. Cherry 2000. You you have to do this. And I said, nah, I can't. Nick's turning down everything. Uh, you know, we, you know, we're, John Daly's doing the banking. Uh, sorry. So then about within the hour, I got a call from Nick's uh, attorney, who was also Coppola's attorney, saying, listen, Nick's going to do Peggy Sue Got Married and a couple other movies, and, you know, we'll slot in Miracle Mont, your little picture down the road in a year or two. And I went, well, no, Nick's, that's not what Nick said. Let let me talk to him. Well, Nick's on Catalina without a phone. He's sailing or something like that. And I couldn't get a hold of Nick. I tried for, you know, you know, made every call I could. And everybody's, if, they all had the same story. He's out of town without a phone, which is a little odd. So I called up Metavoy and I said, send me the script. And I read 20 pages. And after turning down 40 movies to direct, I go, hey, this is weird. I didn't even finish the script. And I committed to do Cherry. Then Nick came back and went, 
you know, got a hold of me. He wasn't on Catalina. Said it was just a bluff. I just told him to bluff. I did, you know, oh, no. and 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 because I made a commitment to Orion, this is about a few days later. So I'm in the office and you know re- ready to go. Uh, I said, you know, sorry, we're I got to do this now. We'll see. And then, but I, I do think it was a good thing. I don't think we would have had the money. It wouldn't, you know. It wouldn't have been good. I want to. I want to go back to, if I could, the original script that you wrote. You had mentioned that Warner Brothers wanted some changes. They wanted to hire, a, like I said, a high pipe. I'm just curious, you know, how different the original script is from the finished product. There, there is one major difference, and this wasn't a Warner Brothers thing. And uh, the original script, and some people haven't forgiven me for that, was an older Harry Washello. It was a, you know. Gene Hackman or Paul Newman, you know, semi-alcoholic trombone player in town, same thing, playing a gig. But he sort of walked out on his family after he witnessed something without a word. And, you know, it's back in town after 15 years. So it's come breaking in the middle of the night to your ex going, remember me, you know, and maybe and I think there's a kid, at least in one draft, and having to reconcile the past in that time lock. And... There's something about that that's very powerful. I, you know, I, I don't have a, a control if somebody wants to remake it or reboot it. I, I do have to be hired as the first writer and first director, and I would encourage anybody to go back and go to this early draft and do a different take on it rather than two people meeting and falling in love. But I made that change. Warner Brothers, I guess, with the, when they made that second offer later um, for The Twilight Zone, Everything could happen in the movie that happens, but then he woke up and it was all a dream and then started happening again, which is, it's almost like you, I can make the movie and then you just have this ending and you could cut that out and you'd still make your movie. It was that close to like, I can go make it on a budget or you know, watch somebody else go make it. And I still couldn't do that at that point. Now I probably would be you know, more malleable, but uh uh, that's that's how I was then. So the other writers, they didn't, they couldn't tell me. They just wanted to put Bill Kirby on it and some other big writers. And I remember a couple of the writers said, "Hey, I'll take the money, but I don't, don't change anything." I went, "This is good." <laughs> so one of the things I really love about the the film is how it begins and ends, like where it comes full circle. And I love that about that film. And when I first saw it, I thought it was the most perfect ending, how it, it ends exactly where it begins. And it's this, it's very poetic. And did you, so did you write it to be like a full encompassing? Like, it, it, full it always be- began and ended at the tar pits. I, I mean, there was that. always, you know, literally, I think in many versions, it starts with ripples on the, in the tar pits. And at the end, you're under, you know, the tar pits and, you know, you're, you're, you're sending that bubble up and rippling and you know uh i mean there's a possibility when you're watching it whether it's that you know little shot we put on the beginning that even confuses me exactly when that is when he's playing the trombone looking at her picture but you know that it could be he fell asleep and it's all and there's a dreamlike quality to it but i wanted to not you know just because la at night is crystalline and kind of like a dream but no, no, like shenanigans with effects or anything like that. So, yeah. So after, after, and we'll we'll get back to Cherry Two Thousand in a moment. But after you commit with to Orion to do Cherry Two Thousand, and that movie comes out, that's eighty seven when the movie is released. Then it's on to full scale. We're making Miracle Mile. 
Yeah, although I'll, I will say this. From 1978, when I made Tarzana, to 85, when I did my first professional job, that Hitchcock show, I didn't work. I just turned down stuff. The more I turned down, the hotter I, I was. So, you know, it's just a weird thing. I mean, I had some writing jobs. I wrote a draft, the first draft of Strange Brew, and was briefly the director of that. And I was attached to I was going to do a D.B. Cooper movie, direct that for Ryan, and a, very, a Hell's Angels movie for UA that we were prepping, and I discovered Mickey Rourke for, and that fell apart. So you, I, I wasn't turning down everything, but, it, you know, I mean, I guess I probably turned down some stuff to write, too, but, you know, I was, but definitely in the 80s, yeah, I was, I was that's what I was doing, because I wanted to make Miracle Mile, so, you know. So you did direct... Um one of my personal favorite episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I'm, there's such a cool story. I, I'm, I would love to hear your story about doing that. Well, it was, you know, the original was Peter uh, Laurie and Steve McQueen and McQueen's wife at the time, I think, Nellie McQueen, which I actually never saw till after I directed. I didn't want, want to see it. So off of Tarzana, you know, the Chris Crow was producing, it was, it wasn't a series at first. It was a four-part TV movie. And so this guy, Chris Crow, went to bat for me as the student film director to, to do an episode. And I got the best story, the best cast. And But I was the fourth episode shooting. And three other big veteran TV people had gone over budget. like a day. It was a five-day shoot on each of them. And so they were really worried about me. I almost got fired. Um, just because I kept changing things in the script because, you know, and then because we got a big high roller suite in Caesar's Palace, I had to change some things just for entrances, very simple things. And they said, no, put it back the way the script was. And I go, well, it won't work. They said, well, put it back or you're fired. So I had to talk them through that. Otherwise, I was going to be fired. But by the end of the week, I was the only one who came in on budget. And, you know, with that cast in the episode turned out great. Um the first day, too, I had a little tension with the TV cameraman because I, I wanted it to have a Technicolor look. So I said, put a red light on that red rug and put a blue light on his blue suit and make it, like, pop. And they kind of resisted, but but then the dailies looked great. And so by the end of the week, I was a hero. And it, it, was, it was a relief because after turning down stuff for seven years, really, like six, seven years, I mean, I... I, you know, I sort of like, can I direct? Can I make a movie? And then I, I delivered. So that that was a relief. But I was arrogant again, and Universal, who had done it, offered me a fortune, like 300000 a year to write, direct, and produce television. I didn't have to do anything. Just have an office. And, and I said no. I mean, that was idiotic. That was stupid. Because I've had deals later and, you know, in television. It's just like, no, you just make a deal. You don't have to do anything. But I was arrogant and said, I don't want to do television. I'm a filmmaker. And then soon thereafter, I did Cherry and my stock, like I said, plummeted. But it was, it was barely. It was because Melanie Griffin is in that episode. Yes. And so is that that's how you met her? Uh, well, yes. Yeah, we'd work together and everybody was on their best behavior on the Hitchcock thing. Because, you know, I mean, I still can't believe I got to direct John Houston and Tippy. He was in it and, and Kim, who and Kim hadn't worked in a long time. Um, and it was really, it was a wonderful shoot. Um, and, uh, and then it turned into a TV series. So it was essentially doing a pilot, but, 
Uh, and Melanie was – there was three choices on Cherry. There's a story I can't put on the air officially here. We meet in person. I'll tell you some stories. But uh, she was sort of the third choice and, and sort of got it by default. And it was a little problematic in that she just had a baby like two weeks before shooting. It was a very arduous shoot. And I've only directed two features. Both films surprisingly have redheads in them. Yeah. And then have – the leading ladies were nursing during the filming. They just had babies. So that's, so you have a type. (laughs) (laughs) Believe me for production, it presents problems. You nothing else. You need extra wardrobe because you know, milk, milk, (laughs) but, um, uh, anyway, so I don't know what, what that was leading up to. (laughs) Well, Melanie Griffith does an, an amazing job, I think. And however she got the role, I think she's perfect. And she's got that toughness and sweetness about her that I don't know who was up, you know, who well, was in contending, but she... I think there's a version that, you know, to me, you know, if it was Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Costner or something, I mean, that would have been pretty good too. But, you know, it is, I, I, I did used to have issues with Cherry. I, I sort of divorced myself from it because it wasn't my baby i didn't write it i jumped on with very little prep it was already it was a train leaving the station so i jumped on there and i did what i could do in that amount of time miracle mile i prepped and i knew everything and backup possibilities cherry was like okay here here's the, the things we're going for oh the set's not built the storm's coming in let's shoot something so it was really sort of we all jumped aboard the thing and we're just grabbing it. And it's it's an unusual movie. People, it's got its own vibe that is just bizarre. Um, but that's, I don't know how, some of that's intentional. Some of it's happenstance. It's like, that's what you get when, when things, you know, go that way. What did you notice from doing the Alfred Hitchcock, the, you said it was a five day shoot. What was the biggest difference you noticed going from that to the set of a feature film? Well, even the Hitchcock thing, I I was very prepared. I, I uh, like I said, they were panicked when they showed up in Vegas, and in you know I was sort of prepping in that high roller suite that we shot in. They go, well, "What's your first shot? Do you have a shot list? You, do you have a shot list? You don't have a shot list." And I said, "Just follow me." And I walked him into another room where I had Paul Chadwick, who who did those paintings and storyboarded Miracle Mile. He had done full storyboards, but it also, and this is what I recommend to young directors to do, I'd gotten stand-ins, and I shot stills, sequential stills, of every shot that I wanted to shoot, which this isn't the ideal for directing a lot of situations, but on this one, I really had to have, here's the shot, you know, here are the shots, and it was up on a wall. You could see the whole shoot on a wall, and they just kind of went, and, and, by the, as long as I made my day, by the end of the first day, I, you know, was ahead of schedule, I think, and it looked good. And then, you know, they, they, they trusted me. Um, so I was very prepared. It was a small thing. Cherry, like I said, I just, I, it was storyboarded. You just, it didn't matter. You just had to go with the flow. And it was a very, you know, we're shooting in every toxic location in Nevada. Big stunts, you know, other units going. It's just, you know, it's just what we ended up with. So, But as the director, I think with Cherry, I think 
part of what makes that movie so fun to watch is a lot of the way the scenes are shot, a lot of the color and the enhancement of certain things versus other things, you know, just the use of the lighting. And like you mentioned with Mir- with your, excuse me, with your Hitchcock episode where you said, I want a certain light on this because I want that to stand out. You know, Cherry, her red dress, it really pops and you've got the, I mean, that's got to be a lot of what, what you had envisioned as well. Just to be, uh, I mean, on Cherry, I'm happy that people like the movie and I'm, I'm proud of it and I have a big poster downstairs, a giant poster of it. Um, but I'm just, you know, I'm one of, I'm, you know, is equal to any other creative factor on there, but you know, the writer, Michael Almereda, the producer, Cody Chubb, who developed it, Lloyd Fonville, who's a big writer who did the story, second unit action guys, you know, I mean, I storyboarded everything, but, and sometimes it wasn't exactly the way we were supposed to do it, but I really credit a lot of people on that. Um, Julie Weiss, the costume designer did an amazing job. The, the supporting cast was amazing, and the music, Basil Palladoris' score, I think, sets the tone for it. So it's, it's more of a collaborative thing than, than a, a film by me. Um, I don't like that credit on anything. I actually pe- petitioned the DGA to remove the a film, a film by credit on Miracle Mile, which I wrote and directed and essentially produced. There wasn't really any another producer who stayed with it the, the duration but uh so i don't know unless you're russ meyer or i don't know who you go out and make a movie with three people it's a film by everybody who worked on it sure so, sure it's, it's, so let's get into the pre-production for miracle mile the cherries come out it's time to make miracle mile hemdale gets on board i mean what what uh, what's the first step there well uh, you know the back in the nick cage version Hemdale had done some stuff, but they, you know, there was another company making a few movies. But later on, the thing that allowed it to be made was, you know, Hemdale made Platoon. They'd done Terminator, but um, uh, Platoon and then and Salvador and I think John Daly, the head of Hemdale, you know, won Best Picture two years in a row, Platoon and Last Emperor. So we still don't have much of a budget. 3.7 below the line, 4.4 all in with the top, you know. The actors, and then three point seven. After you take out insurance and contingency, it's about three million dollars to make a movie, which is, you know, very expensive. And the Bond company certainly thought it would cost twenty million. So, I was under a great deal of pressure to stay on schedule. If I got more than two days behind schedule, I was going to be fired on that. So, the movie plays essentially in real time once. Mm-hmm. Harry gets Once to the, the phone call. Once the phone yeah. call. I have to ask, it's a movie that, like I said, real time. How long was the shoot? How long How long, how long oh, did you shoot for? It was only seven weeks, um, six weeks of nights, you know, and we actually lost one week of shooting just before shooting on a weird business deal that, that I think told you about Tony Bill taking me in with the pitch. Um, he had an overall deal, so... When I got it back from Warner Brothers, if, if the film was ever made, Warner's was supposed to get thirty five thousand plus interest, and you know accumulated is interest if the film ever got made. And for for Tony's deal, and I had arranged that Warner Brothers was going to allow that to go away, but John Daly never talk, called him, and so we lost a week of shooting because we had to pay a hundred and ten thousand dollars or something. That's what thirty five thousand plus interest over 10 years will get you 
or nine years. So we're, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we were just talking about the, uh, the, you said the seven week shoot. It was uh, six of it at night. All at night, which is, has its own issues with the crew trying to sleep in the daytime. And I stayed on schedule, but I went out afterwards with the small crews and I shot, you know, millions of times, just little connective tissue, sometimes bigger scenes, reshot some of the opening on my dime. I, I spent every dime I had from writing deals and cherry uh, and then went about a hundred and fifty thousand in debt until I couldn't borrow anymore. Just just shooting other stuff. So Steve, this so this movie was written in the seventies, but this movie, Miracle Mile, has some very quintessential eighties themes to it. And one of my absolute favorite fun parts after the phone call is the gym and the <laughs> the eighties gym enthusiasm. That wasn't a thing in the seventies. So was what? that part of the original? That was a real there were twenty four hour gyms then. There are certainly are now. A lot of people didn't buy that. There was a couple of things they said, that's ridiculous, an, a gym in the middle of the night. No, that's L.A., and it is very 80s. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the hairdos, the, I, the people ask, what would you want to change? And I would like a, an ample CGI budget to go <laughs> put in a, get rid of that mullet. No, but, sir. I, I disagree. <laughs> I wouldn't change a thing about it. I think it's perfect. Well, if it was really her hair that we shot principal photography with, but if you look closely sometimes, it's a bad wig we put on a year later when we're doing pickup shots sure. in some <laughs> shots. And it looks like a, you know, a toothbrush or something. It makes it uh, fun though. That's one of the things that makes that movie fun. It, it, it is, it is very 80s. The, the, we, you know, I did the commentary on the Blu-ray with, with uh, Chris Horner, the production designer and Teo Von DeSante, my, heroic DP. And one reason it looks a little less eighties than a lot of eighties things is we're shooting at night, but we didn't wet the streets down. We didn't use smoke infiltration. And so sort of has this clean, pristine look, not the MTV, which is blade runner light, you know, eighties look terminators, you know, it's got a lot of smoke and, you know, it's, it's a little more eighties looking. So I think it survives a little bit, from that it does you know certainly the the clothes are very 80s and and of course tangerine dream which uh, also i don't think the film works without the score um you know is quintessentially 80s so i'd love to just talk about the casting process i mean talking going beyond the leads i mean just in that diner scene alone you've got denise crosby earl bowen i mean you've got some some quintessential you know actors in this scene but can you just talk a little bit about the casting process once you 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 had your budget and you're ready to make the film it's time to cast the film yeah lauren lloyd was the casting director and just you know found people who had who had done stuff but were really substantial people i mean alan rosenberg mark's brother was in the wanderers and yeah denise and earl and brian thompson the helicopter pilot He's actually from my little logging town near Portland, a little town of 20,000 people. He was, his dad was my oceanography teacher. But, no you know, he had been in Terminator and, you know, he has sort of that, you know, Ar- Arnold look. He stars in, you know, Conan type movies and stuff like that when they can't get Arnold. You know, Jeanette Goldstein, you know, is one of the Beverly Hills girl women. She's Vasquez in Aliens. Yeah. So just really, really great people. 
And the dinosaur, I don't know if you, on the Blu-ray, did you look at the extras at all? There's a reunion of that cast, supporting cast. I did. On there. I, I rented the movie when I watched it oh, the other day, yeah. so I didn't get to, I mean, uh, we're, we're getting the Blu-ray. I, mean, I that, own it on got, Amazon. We, we, we purchased it digitally. Amazon, oh, Amazon is, looks like crap. You'll, you'll be amazed that the Blu-ray, even the DVD looks a thousand times better. In fact, I got to get the new version on Amazon because it's, it's, you know, it looks a thousand times better, and it has a lot of great extras. You know, ten or twelve of the supporting cast in Johnny's on that I ran up on my credit card, and having a big love fest remembrance on the the German and French and UK Blu-rays. There's even there, there's fifteen minutes on the Kino Lorber one, and there's another twenty five minutes of the supporting cast on the others so there's outtakes and stuff yeah what would you i mean i'm I'm gonna go on amazon and and buy the blu-ray tonight which one do you recommend i purchase uh uh, no i'll send you you know send me your address i'll send you an arrow one can you play do you have an all region player absolutely yeah i'll send you the arrow one which doesn't have tarzana but you know i sent you a link for that yeah and the Kino, yeah, I I'm actually don't have a lot of Kinos. So I can send you an Arrow one, sure. and they'll have the extra Johnnies on, the, on it and stuff like that. Oh, that would be And great. then there's a 10-minute out, you know, footage and shots that aren't in there that and the and an interview with, with uh, Paul Hasslinger at Tangerine Dream and some stuff like that. So I would love it if you would – I mean, if you can, up get that on Amazon, though. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I know. I got to figure out how to do that because people – you know, I got this book coming out. I'm going to tell people to go watch the movie, but it's a crappy version on Amazon. It's the washed out, like it's not even the right format. Wow, and it looks I, still, I still loved it. <laughs> you know, it works. It's like you can you can watch a movie where it's totally falling apart. Unless you're the filmmaker, then you can't watch anything. It's like, you know, shut it off, shut it off. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, it just looks way, way better. I mean, and, it, and we, for the Blu-ray, for all these, we did a 2K off the interpositive, which is good. It's way better than the old version. But it's not a 4K off the negative, which is, you know, the Criterion style or for you do for bigger movies. So I'm hoping at some point we can do that. And, you know, Teo, the DP, we went in for three nights and I think stayed. We went over budget on that. Uh, just to, to to do the 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 uh, the new version, it has the happy ending on it too. Oh, okay, and that, that's what I wanted to ask you about. There was a couple things in this in this movie, and was there ever any pushback over the fact that it was America that fired first in this movie? Yeah, yes. In fact, back to um, Orion when who before I did Cherry. There was a time when we were going to make Miracle Mile on like an eight or ten million dollar budget, and Kurt Russell, you know, we made an offer. You know, I had a three hour lunch with him a couple times, and that was, I think, the older version or something. But uh, and then they had one change: we can't start the war. The Russians have to start because it was Arthur Krim, who was one of the big heads of United Artists, and then Orion was a salt. Uh, two salt talks uh, two negotiator um, and he said you know we can't have that we can't do that so I get well you, the Russians if the Russians started it's a 10 minute movie you know, or 15 minute movie we have to be locked in you know get the information from somebody where it's we haven't launched it's just we're we're in countdown to launch 
And if that happens, then the Russians will pick it up, and that's the 70-minute timeline. Because we'll just figure it out. You can make it work. So I had to say no. I said I can't make that work and go away. So uh, I don't know what the movie would have been. It's like you know, it, there nobody had a lot of pressure to do this, but this was sort of the creative choice. It's a trombone player in the middle of the night by happenstance. You know, I mean, there's a little Rube Goldberg thing with the cigarette and the bird and electricity. Why is this guy getting the phone call? He doesn't. He's not Bruce Willis and Die Hard. He doesn't save the day. He just wants to get the love of his life and he can't stop the war. He can't even survive. So it is, you know, you don't know what happened. You don't, there's no generals involved. I think that's what make why people watch it today is that it is just sort of this very specific, you know, POV of one person. And I, you know, even now people that talk about maybe rebooting, it's like, Oh, well, everybody will have a cell phone. That's, I don't know what that movie is. You know, you know, if I get paid, great. Somebody goes and tries to make it. I hope it doesn't get made, but, you know, I'll take the money. It's just, you know, it's got to be this other thing. So, One of the things that, I and I pick this up every time I watch the film, is there's this foreboding sense throughout the movie that maybe it's not going to happen. And that is one of the things that I think is the most effective thing. And what people have told me about their viewing, their first viewing is you don't know until the last five minutes of this movie, whether or not that was a prank phone call. And I'm wondering, you know, was there ever any other ending that you had envisioned or was this always the way it was going to end? Now, this this was it there. Uh, like I say, I said no to the wake up and it starts happening again. There are a couple things in the script there's even a little – there's a thing of the Gerstead guy on the roof acknowledging one thing. We could never really shoot shoot the scene to make it work. But the first missile comes over. They're holding each other up on the roof, and it lands and doesn't go off. It's just like smoking, you know, six blocks away on oh. Wilshire Boulevard. And that was too – you know, you got so many frustrating things. You got a pilot. You, you can't get back – you know, it's just – you're really frustrating the audience. And that – even though I researched that and – Russian missiles, probably more than half would be duds. So it's very possible the first one would come over and just, you know, fizzle. That we didn't really try to do. Um, but um, now there wasn't really, yeah, this, this was the end to go down and be fossils. You know, you, you're meeting in a museum in a panorama, beautiful panorama of extinction. And by the end, you're, that's the best you can hope for is that someday we'll be in a museum together as extinct animals. That's, I mean, that's the best part, I think, is how the ending makes, An- well, Anthony Edwards' character, he is the hero of his own life at that point. And so because had the movie ended any differently, he wouldn't be the hero of his, I mean, that's what he wanted. He got exactly what, you know, there was, like you said, nothing he can do to prevent it or nothing or he could do to or, stop it. Or even escape. If you did get this call and you, you know, you have to take a certain amount of time to get these, you know, to, to get these other people to acknowledge what you heard and run off to the airport. If he just would have immediately gotten Julie and got to the airport and gone to Antarctica, then you're going to die. What? Three months later or something. So I didn't want to encourage that. There's a lot of disaster movies you see today where like, you know, with all the CGI spinning effects, you know, they thread the needle and they survive, but millions of people died, but you got away. It's like, that's not really that heroic either. So, uh, it was just like, no, everybody's gone. This is it. 
go do some, you know, leave the theater. And the, the purpose of the movie was to shake people up, you know, viscerally so they would be aware of the subject again and go do something about it. Of course, we haven't in 30 years and it's still ready to go. So is is I mean, one of the things I found fascinating is when Denise Crosby's character basically explains that, look, it's Antarctica. That's where we have to go. I mean, is this even though it's an attack between two countries, United States and the Soviet Union at the time, we would be looking at a complete world decimation, correct? Yeah, yeah. Back then with, with you know, 10,000, 15,000 warheads on either side, yeah, just the radiation is going to be everywhere. You're, you're going to avoid, particularly with rain, which is why they were going to, you know, the desert in Chile where it uh, – you know, doesn't rain or Antarctica, which doesn't rain that much. Uh, but, you know, I mean, that movie, you know, on the beach is sort of people waiting, you know, for the radiation cloud to come. Yeah. So, so when you've wrapped up the film, how long do you spend in post-production? Well, on this one longer, did an edit. I mean, like I say, I kept shooting connected. Th- there's places, you know, where it didn't work at all. The opening didn't work at all. I still want to tinker with the opening. And just because you're, you're saying, you're basically you're saying two people are falling in love. You don't have the time to really experience it. So it's a little montage and, you know, you're, you're telling the audience that they fell in love. Uh, but that's just the nature of that, which is another reason why I don't think if somebody reboots it, they should try to do that either. It's, they should do the thing with the backstory. And, and John Daly even though he really supported the film in the end, um, the head of Hemdale was notorious for like getting down on everything. He's a little manic depressive and it'd see people's films and go, Oh, it's a mess. And then it turned it over to the hatchet man editor to recut it. And that almost happened to me too. It started, started to happen once. Um, and I think I even, this is how much I cared about the movie. I'm not sure if this, I really did this or I, cause I've told the story if you did, but when John Daly was going to do that, he's like, okay, we're going to put another editor on it. I said, tell, tell John I'm on driving to his office with a loaded shotgun. <laughs> and I think I was, I, I don't know if I really drove there, but, and you know, agents, of, oh, so don't say. he actually respected that cause he was a cockney gangster. Essentially. He's a tough guy from the East end. And he went, oh, well, Steve cares that much. Okay. And he keep, and I kept putting my money in it, and he'd give me money back sometimes. So he goes, the other directors, they don't care. They, you know, they just, you know, John would never give you the money in profits, like Terminator and Platoon. They, they had to sue to get the money. But he did let you make your movie, so I, I have to love him. He, he, I don't think any other director talked to him after the company went bankrupt. Uh, he used to hug me like I was his long-lost son. Because nobody else talked to him because he didn't pay them their money. But, so you, know. so you, you got final cut on your film? Well, actually, he had two cuts. Um, they were insignificant. One was this happy ending, which I had had a friend, Elisa Bello, who was an effects person, also the, the Go-Go's first drummer. But uh, she made two diamonds that that white light sort of coalesces into two diamonds and they spin away. It's two two seconds long. And I put that on there and we tested it once and John said, eh, it's too upbeat. Let's cut it out. Let's rip their hearts out. That's the head of a studio saying, let's go with a darker version. And I, you know, I was on the fence. It, either way was fine. So uh, it is an alternate 
possibility on the Blu-ray. But surprisingly, it doesn't get any support at all. I don't think anybody really wants that in So, And then there was one shot, beautiful shot, at the top of the escalator where Michael T. Williamson is coming up like that and then he can't go any further and the camera's coming down. And he says, oh, he's too bloody in that. So cut out one other shot. And that's really not very much. So so how did Anthony Edwards end up being the one on board for the well, lead? To me, that's a, mir- a miracle. Because um, I can't really even imagine. I mean, Nick Cage, I, I, you wouldn't be talking to me. I, it would be, it would have a cult following, but it, a very intense cult following of like 17 people. And but he'd be Charlie from Peggy Sue Got Married. Exactly. And, you know, or it'd be Vampire's Kiss or whatever. But, um, <laughs> so, you know, after Top Top Gun, um, Goose, you know, uh, Tony as Goose was hot. And that's That got the movie made. And to me, he has the perfect Jimmy Stewart quality to be, you know, this really likable guy who, you know, you can empathize with. You can You can be in his shoes. You can be him. In this movie and a lot of movies, you have to sort of be the the leading person, whether it's a man or a woman. You know, you need to be that character, and and I and he allows that, and he's a great actor. Mayor is incredible as well, who's you know can make makes anything real. Now, I don't know if you know the the final love story of Miracle Mile. Would you share it with us, please? This is you know you, I used to keep it secret, but. So Tony and Mayor got together. You know, they'd known each other. They'd done theater and stuff like that. But they, you know, he was married, with had three kids. She was married and had five kids. Oh. They got together to do some interviews for the Blu-rays for Kino a few years ago. And their marriages were over and they fell in love. They're together. They're oh. diamonds. They're a couple in real life. <laughs> that is really cool. Wow. So uh, that's been known for, for a while now. But, uh, and it's just, yeah, yeah that's, that's the most remarkable thing. It's so m- we did, we we did a panel in New York at the Metrograph a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing that they, you know, had that separation and still got back together and rekindled. I mean, that's really something. I, I love that. And it happened yeah. all because of that film. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah. It's like, uh, so, uh, and I got to direct him on ER, you know, so, uh, uh, and I didn't get to, she was on for an arc of a, a character, a, think like a fake doctor or something. I didn't get to do those, but I, I did some other ones. So I, I mean, I love ER that, so it's, I'm from Chicago originally, you know, and that takes place in County, County right. general and uh, County hospital in Chicago. How was it with directing ER? And then obviously you had a, a history with Anthony Edwards. Yeah. So, I mean, I had an in there and at the time I hadn't, let's see, I directed, did this untouchables, TV show, which was shot in Chicago, uh, Bill Forsyth in the early nineties. But I was mainly in the nineties, you know, after turning down all this stuff, I, I was writing pilots. So I wrote 15 pilots, got four made. So I, you know, was, I definitely was embracing being, a you know, after turning down that universal deal, I was just like writing pilots constantly. Hadn't directed too much, but, um, did, I did, oh, I did a pilot in 95 of, for Fox where I had, Teo Von DeSante, my DP, shoot it. But it was great. You know, I was very prepared. Uh, I had went and shot simulated Steadicam shots with stand-ins on the sets. I mean, I over-prepare, but then I try not to, to you know, I don't, like, bring a storyboard and go, we're doing this. It's just, 
you've thought it through, so you have various ways to do it. But that crew was so amazing, you can they'll make anything work. So uh, it was a wonderful experience, and I did a couple of those. Yeah. And that was the hottest show at the time. What the- yeah, it was the, like, the Clooney years too. So um, it was great. And you know, you don't do you don't do a lot of directing. Uh, as far as talking about character or anything with the stars, they come out there, they know their dialogue. They're going to say their line twice and the crew's going to make it work. Uh, I got to do an episode with Alan Alda, who was a guest star. And then you can talk through backstory. You can do a little bit of that, but television directing is a, is a different deal. And I think I did like 40 episodes overall, but ER was the by far the best experience. Going back to Miracle Mile, with you've got the finished film, the, the final cut is done. It's can we talk about the release of the movie? It was done actually in '88, and it played the Toronto Film Festival. And so technically, maybe some. It, I think it's even on IMDb. It's listed as '88. It didn't. It was released May nineteenth of nineteen eighty nine. Was the release date? But it, Hemdale had a deal with TriStar. And it wasn't just Miracle Mile, it was all their pictures. That deal fell apart for whatever reasons. So we had to wait a year, you know, almost from when it was going to be released. And Hemdale started their own little distribution company. I can't complain. Some people, even at the company, wanted to wait till the fall and do an art house rollout. And I just wanted the picture out. So the other thing was to do a test thing where you'd open it wide in New York and LA as an action movie with TV ads. And they did, they opened wide in theaters in New York and LA and it did well for two weeks. It held its own with roadhouse for theater and, uh, you know, had a lot of great reviews and then Raiders and field of dreams. The third Raiders movie field dreams came out and, you know, two big hits just wiped it out of the cineplexes and it, and it, it played around, but it, it, you know, it made like a million and a half, you know, in theaters, which is, you know, not very much. It made a lot on video. I think it made 10 million on video or something, but they went bankrupt and I never saw my, Oh no. I think I was owed three or 400,000 and never got it. So I want to talk about what Roger Ebert had to say about the film. Because he he was he was very very high on the movie, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts were to have arguably the most famous film critic of all time praise the movie. Well, uh, I loved, of course, what he said. I, I remember I was mad at at Siskel. Yes, and, and Roger was mad at him because he basically Siskel was talking about a movie that hadn't been made that he wanted it to be made, and it's and Roger was saying no, judge this one. So. You know, that's what people do a lot. It, well, it should have been about this. Well, you go make a movie and yeah. do that then. But that's not what this one is. I mean, it had, it had some big critics, but I'd say it was more like 70%, 75%, you know, positives. And and then just some old, you know, really people hated it. I don't know why. You said the movie, you said it made about $10 million on home video. So it had it yeah, had some it, legs on home video. It, it did well on that, but it was, you know, certainly perceived as you know, didn't make money and it didn't, didn't make, I mean, it went into profits. Like say I was owed, um, both points and deferred salary. So, but you know, you're not going to see that. I mean, if Jim Cameron and Oliver Stone didn't get their money, <laughs> I'm not getting my money. So uh, that's just the way it was. When do you start to realize and when do you start to hear the buzz that you've got a real bona fide cult classic on your hands? 
not till just a few years ago. I mean, I all my work in television, I think, I'd, you know, there would be people in television, oh, you know, I, I love Miracle Mile. I saw it at Sundance or whatever. But So it had, a, you know, it had respect to that. There's people who knew the script. In some ways, the script had its own cult or respect in the early 80s. I mean, it was in that first list of the 10 best unproduced scripts. And some people never forgave me. They thought I, you know, I, I, that it was this perfect script in the movie, you know, I mean, a, a script can be a $200 million on screen until you have to film it. And I only had 3 million. So I don't know. There's some, there's something powerful about the script that's, that is still there in the film, but it's, um, you know, with your own imagination might be more powerful. Really. It was like, I don't know, Walter Chow, uh, who's a, uh, wrote a whole book on Miracle Mile, both a sort of a personal memoir about his life at the time and when he saw it and how it affected him, and then really just dissecting. He also does a commentary on the Blu-ray. And then just really when the Kino Lorber Blu-ray came out, it's that that's when really it's like, oh, I know that movie, I love that movie, and it just it started playing theaters around the world. I toured France for a month. I mean, France was amazing that the people had been, they'd recorded, I guess the French dub version was terrible and, and, it, and that was on TV. And they, somehow they, they had another version that was on TV and they made a videotape of it. And then they, people made dupes of the videotape. And so it had a cult. And then, you know, the, I went over to do a screening the night after the election in 2016 and then made a deal on a French Blu-ray, and it's you know it has a big following there. We sold out the Cinematheque and this other thing, and Cahiers du Cinema did two articles. So it was like, and you know, that was uh, really great for my <laughs> my ego to go over there. So thirty years after the release of the film, you're going, you're attending multiple screenings throughout the country different parts of the world what's it like for you 30 years out to see the reactions that that the film is getting well it's it it i'm glad i made all the choices i made um cast wise turning down money you know putting my own money into it threatening to <laughs> bring a shotgun to the producer you know that's what i had to do on that i i think you know i've never been able to put that commitment that willpower into another movie since then I, I i had to do the same thing on tarzana tarzana we shot four times over two years i had to like will that into existence for like twelve thousand dollars and then i had a career off that um then i went into television where i'm a little more like you know played the game you know which i think is is good i, I would be homeless now if i didn't have actually didn't actually work for a living, and I think I have 26 years in the Writers Guild and 22 in the Directors Guild. So then I got nice pensions and health coverage. And if I was just that sort of maniacal feature filmmaker, you don't make any money. You see that there's people who are still doing that, and I, I try to tell them to go into television, you know, play the game a little bit, or you're you know you can't keep. And I couldn't keep putting my own money into movies and going broke. I mean, people do that, and it's I have. Miracle Miles, my baby, got Cherry as my stepchild. <laughs> the redheaded stepchild. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> good one. Good one. And you know, a, you know, association with Strange Brew and and uh, you know, AM Flux and you know, very Lizzie McGuire. I ended up. I mean, I could never have done that when I was a snotty young auteur direct. I mean, I couldn't direct television, let alone a kids show. And that was the most fun I ever had. That was just a blast. So um, I mellowed and, you know, decided not to to do that. So, I mean, there, there are other directors, many of whom I love, Alex Cox and various people who, you know, they fight the war on each film. And at a certain point that, you know, that hurts you. So, so what was it like? having to like writing and you did a first draft right for for strange brew and, and tell me about that because it was it, it was literally like a a one-shot scene type of situation where these guys go to a donut shop and they tried to make a skit out of it and you have to make a movie what was well, it like well they 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 had to do canadian programming on sctv which those guys are every one of them are a genius there's a brilliant show and you know Rick and Dave are equal to any of them, but the, all, everybody in that cast is amazing. So they had to do two minutes of Canadian programming. And so they just did this improv thing with Bob, you know, Bob and Doug frying up back bacon a, and talking about hockey and Led Zeppelin and, and drinking Molson. <laughs> yeah. And so I got the gig and this isn't well known. I've said it in a couple of interviews, but uh, Joel Silver put the whole thing together. He's responsible for it. Um, and he doesn't have a credit on the movie. No kidding. Like, Joel Silver. But he was Larry, he, you know, was producing for Larry Gordon and still he wasn't on it out on his own. And Belushi had just died and, you know, they knew him and they were depressed and they were going back on the show. So it was like, you know, we need a Bob and Doug script. So Joel, you know, ah, we need a Bob and Doug movie. You know, it's like, <laughs> I think Rick does him. A lot of people have done Joel. So he sent a couple of my scripts up to Toronto and they read a miracle mile. And then I think a logging with helicopters, Burt Reynolds comedy I wrote or something. And I got the job and we, you know, hashed around a bunch of things while they were on the show. And at a certain point, I can't remember if it was me or whoever. It was like, well, Hamlet at a brewery, Rosencrantz and Gildenstern or Hosers a, and we barely had a story. I can't remember, but, it was taking a, you know, a mouse in a bottle back to the brewery and then getting involved in the ghost in the machine and all that. And I read, wrote the first draft in ten days. And you know, Dave on, on, on the internet somehow doesn't remember that quite right because he goes, "Oh, we had some writer and we threw that." No, they hired me. They liked it enough to hire me to be the director. So <laughs> I got paid fifty thousand dollars to not direct it, but I. Started prepping it and uh, hired David uh, Snyder, the art director from Blade Runner, who's a good friend of mine, to come design it. Um, you know, they were going to direct it anyway. It's they were going to improvise, and they're it's their baby. And so I think if I would have been on, and it went as a Canadian point system, so they paid me to go away. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, and ironically, that mouse in the bottle thing. Uh, I remember when we were prepping, I went and toured all the big breweries, Carling and Labatt's, because they all wanted in on the phenomenon. Uh, why is Molson getting the free advertising? But because I put that bit from the script in the, you know, <laughs> from the show into the script, and they, they all, all the breweries said, take that out. And Rick and Dave said, fuck you. <laughs> uh, so 
they all boycotted the movie. They, they were going to put a million. They're going to go do whatever you want. We'll shut down the factory or the the brewery and give you a million dollars and it's your budget. And no, said fuck that. They went. They bought some brewery, interest in a brewery in Vancouver, and you know. And it's it's another one of those things. When I first saw it, I was kind of embarrassed by it, but it's such a cult movie and. I'm just glad, you know, my name's on it and I'm associated with it. It's not, it's not my movie. I, I don't think it would exist if I didn't, you know, write that script in 10 days, probably. It's that version, certainly. There would be a Bob and Doug movie. And Joel was told, you have to leave 48 hours or you don't get a producing credit. Oh. And so he didn't, obviously, and then he became Joel Silver. He put the whole thing together. He made it happen. Well, I can tell you as a, um, I'm originally from Canada and oh. uh, born and raised till I was till the age of 20. And that is a, um, wildly popular movie where I'm from in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Oh, Halifax. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember at the Seattle film festival once I met, I went to the, I think it was, they were running Jesus of Montreal or something. And I went to the emb- embassy and the ambassador who was very, you know, full of himself. I was introduced to him as a writer on Strange Brew, and he, he looked at me like I tracked dog shit on his drug. <laughs> that, that was not the the, the image of Canada. He was like, oh, Strange Brew. I'm familiar with caricature. So I made but, a uh, I made a comment to Dana earlier uh, today, and um, so I saw Strange Brew when I was young, very young. It's just how things were in the early '80s, growing up. You know, you got to see the fun, but I. I saw Strange Brew when I was very young and I feel that it is a like it's almost like the original Wayne's World, you know, for me growing up. <laughs> Wayne's World was like that's obviously shot I mean from Joliet, Illinois where I I grew up close yeah. enough to there and I just I think that you with that movie really kind of set a tone for taking a skit and turning it into a feature film. Well, you think that there there's a whole genre there could be a film festival or somebody could write a book on this. Two dumb guys with their own movie. It goes back to Abbott and Costello or, you know, silent movies, uh, Bob, the Bob Hope, Bing Crosby road pictures, Cheech and Chong, of course, Cheech and Chong before that. But then there's Bill and Ted, Wayne and Garth, Kumar and whatever, you Herald. know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, White yeah, Castle. So That's the best in Illinois. Yeah. I have a White Castle scented can- candle here somewhere. Oh, it's so good. Uh, it's, uh, Does it smell like farts? <laughs> it, 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 oh, this candle will clear the room. Uh, 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 anyway, so yeah, that's a whole genre, and they keep doing it. And uh, I don't know. Strange Brew is, is another. I'm going to have three weird, fairly unique 80s cre- feature credits, for, for better or worse. And. Uh, and that, you know, got nice posters and cult followings. So can you talk about the book you've got coming out? Yeah. So about, you know, eight years ago or something, I, you know, I, I could still get work, but I was just having to do all this spec work, which pretty much everybody I know is a writer now just does, you know, all this work and do- doesn't get paid. So after working for really 30 straight years, it was just not happening. And so I went and got a master's degree in creative writing and, you know, been writing short stories and somehow like with Tarzan or whatever, I, I get this in, in early initial luck or whatever, but the first story I sent out got in the best American short stories. And, you know, I've had a few others, you know, like that. 
And I finally have a story collection coming out in April. Um, University of Chicago Press, uh, Acre Books from Cincinnati, through, distribute through them. And, you know, it's both in print and digital. And I think if you want, you know, there's some intense stories in there. A uh, few lighter ones, but it's pretty heavy, intense stuff. And I think if you like Miracle Mile uh, and Cherry and other stuff, you'll you'll dig it. I won't. I won't make any money off it, but I want people to go see what I, what's what I've been doing lately. So, so what's the what is the name of the what's the title? Uh, yeah, Grace for Grace. I think I, I might have sent you a link or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, the University of Chicago distribution or publishing um, uh, pre- or press it's on the website now you can pre-order um, and I'll you know be promoting that a bit and um, I, I, there's not a story in there right now but I uh, when I was raising money for a website for Miracle Mile I did promise that I will write a story about Landa and the diner characters going off to Antarctica. Yes. And people who contribute on the website, and maybe we'll have a book deal if you buy the book or something, your name will get to be on the survivors list in Antarctica. <laughs> and I'll I'll figure out what happened to them. Well, but, sign uh, me up. I'm buying the book. I want to survive. Yeah, we definitely, yeah, when when April comes around and you're doing some promotion, we'd love to have you back on to talk more okay. about the book. Yeah, oh, that would be good. And yeah, you can be out be be fucking penguins with Jacques Cousteau. Yes. Ooh. As Gerstead says on the roof. That's excellent. But, uh, well, uh, well, Steve, anyway. you, you mentioned the, the website for Miracle Mile. Is there a way for the listeners to, they want to le- you know, learn a little bit more about what you're doing? Is there some websites they can check out? Right. Well, you can go on there and there's a lot, you know, there's other interviews and stuff like that. I'm, it's just me. I mean, I'm transferring stuff. I got things on Vimeo now. I sent you some Vimeo yep. links. It's just going so slow. I mean, I wish I had people who could help me. And I'll just put all, I mean, I have full storyboards, artwork, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. Cat, you know, casting sessions. Uh, and, you know, it'll get all get up there. So I'm hoping the website will be up, you know, February or March or something like that. Scan, you know, as you can see, I'm scanning i got boxes everywhere yeah. and i'm finding things and versions of the script and things like that so excellent but, so can i have a little teaser from one of the stories in the book like what's your favorite one that you wrote in the book because i think pro- probably the main one that's the shortest too because some of these stories are really long and really dense but um rubio rising which uh, surprisingly is somebody nearly drowning and it's a heroin. It's a guy who came home from Iraq, a Cajun guy uh, addicted to painkillers, missing an arm and a leg and his aunt has nailed him shut in the attic to detox when Katrina hits and then the water's rising. So it's him surviving after enduring all this terrible stuff going through a, you know, a really arduous journey. Um, and I don't know, I wrote that and it was in a small literary magazine, Santa Monica Review, and then Alice Seabold, the, the Lovely Bones, picked it for the best American short stories. So um, that's, the, yeah, it's the best one to read. Then the Mulligan, there's one about, you know, loophole in the Nebraska Haven law where you could, you know, leave kids in a 
firehouse or hospital based on a true occurrence. Up until the age of 18 years old, by the way. Yes. So so there's a story mulligan in the thing that is is about that. And it's it's very emotional. I think I sent you links to those. And there's another one, Her Her Great Blue, which is sort of the the cover, which is this whale eye, uh, is about that. And that's a bizarre story. But, uh, you know, I'd say those three stories are are worth really worth reading. And, you know, I can send you that one, too. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, Please, yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's, I I embraced a whole new craft. I didn't, I took it seriously. I don't do what a lot of screenwriters do, which is just take a screenplay and put it in prose and, you know, I, I slave over the sentences. I'm kind of dyslexic, so the syntax is odd. I mean, it's very – it's not minimal like Raymond Carver's stuff. It's very dense. Over, You know, it's, I, I like to say that it's the equivalent of, you know, you can shoot a movie like Brisson or something like that very simply. Uh, this is like a crane shot or a 360. You know, I'm, I'm trying too hard. <laughs> no, I don't – style so the depth of just what you are discussing with that first short story that you mentioned where the water's rising on someone that's already feeling like they're drowning from a, a overcoming a addiction i mean that is it's that's impressive just that well, connection is so interesting i can't wait to read the book that that's that story and and well there's, there's some good stories and there's some you know um and i keep starting i mean i have you know boxes and things mapped out for novels or limited series. I just, you know, I, I seem to, you know, I can finish the short stories, even if they're 10,000 words, these other things are just, you know, they sort of escape me. I, I develop them. They expand and I don't know, I'll do something with them at some point. But, yeah. I know that you mentioned before we started recording that you knew Phil. Phil Jan- oh, I don't, Jan- I don't know Phil. I've, I've never met him. Oh, oh you've I, not. I, okay. No, I just love, I mean, state of grace is a masterpiece. You know, and then I just did my and, and three o'clock hot. Yeah, I mean, we tangerine dream, and yeah. you know, so he was also he's also a very stylish filmmaker, and I'm you know I'm rooting for him. I know he, and I'm glad he's doing television and commercials. I, I you know, there's no money in short stories. I would I'm trying to get back in the game a little bit. I'm not going to get to direct episodic again. I don't think uh, there's some people on Bosch who who are, would go to bat for me, but. Or even the Lizzie, re, you know, reboot. I, that's not going to happen. Uh, I can try to write my way back in and do a limited series. I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. Were, were you a fan of the show um, Amazing Stories? Did you? Have- well, yeah, Amazing Stories. I that was about the same time as the Hitchcock thing. So I think I talked to him about doing once one, but then I was off on Cherry or something. So and yeah, so there's some great Amazing Stories. Yeah. 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 Well, Phil, I mean, I just. I don't know. So if you've never met, I was just, I think you and Phil have got such a, a I would love the two of you to well, be able to meet and collaborate I, on something. It sounds like you were both so. If he needs scripts, I, I, I am trying to find people to run with my scripts. I had another script in the third 10 best unproduced scripts list, Hair of the Dog, which is a yep. dark, like Nashville thing in the 60s. And I, I, I my heart isn't in it to, to go do what you need to do on it. So I'm trying to, you know, I'd let somebody else go run with it and a few other things. I'm, I'm trying to get out there. But if I do direct anything else, I'll, I'll find something really small to two people in one location and do, you know, something like that. But to go out there and do everything I write is big. So then you need a lot of money and nobody can make an interesting big movie anymore. 
So Steve, we just, again, this has been an amazing conversation and I'm, I, I, I'm happy to do more. It's, you know, I'm just up here, up here in the woods sure. writing stories. So. Sure. Well, that was the next thing I was going to say is that, you know, we, we'd be delighted if you come back uh, and join us again sometime soon, you know, just, uh, just the conversation was just been, it's been fantastic. So, so, so thanks for doing this. Thank you. It's, it's, you know, it's great to be, have something you did that long ago, you know, still be, you know, uh, vibrant and, and, and meaningful to people. So, and, uh, we're, I know we're incredibly excited to, to for your short story book. I mean, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you actually I'll have, uh, advanced reading copies in a couple of weeks, but I, I may have a version of that I can send and send me your address and I'll dig up an arrow Blu-ray and some couple posters and stuff like that too. Oh, that would Whatever. be that would be amazing. So the short stories are you doing that in an audio book as well? You said, uh, you know, at some point there isn't one scheduled. I did, I did win a, a Missouri Review uh, audio contest with Olan Jones, who's the waitress in Miracle Ma, reading a short story. Hmm. I, you know, I got to get the website up first and a few other things. But what I'd love to do a, an audio thing or do. You know, audio that was audio with effects and music, oh, sure. and get some of my actor friends to read the stories. That would be great too. Um, that'll be down the road, right? Right now, it's just going to come out. It's a small press. Um, you know, it's brutal out there in the literary world, particularly for short story collections. Sure. No, you know, bookstores don't want it, so you got to like you know get the word out of that. But excellent. Um, well, well, I definitely want to talk more about that when it gets closer yeah. to the release. Then we'll. I, I will be in San Antonio at the AWP Writers Convention in March or something like that. But you know, anyway. so well, if you ever make it, if you ever make it to uh, to Florida, let us know. I I got some stories with um, Mickey Rourke prepping a movie with Mickey Rourke in Florida. So okay. next time, <laughs> next oh. time, uh, excellent. All yeah. right, well, listen, Steve, thank you again. Kristen, thank you. Thank you so much. And it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Steve. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.